This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Joined today on the podcast by Graham Henderson, who works within football in a role as head of performance at Falkirk Football Club. Graham, thanks for joining me. No problem, Callum. Thanks for having me. Your title is head of performance at Falkirk. What does that role involve? Um, it's a good opening question. Uh, probably the easiest way to, to speak about it would be in terms of sports science and fitness. Um, sports science in general over the last kind of decade has, has evolved and that's why now you're seeing quite a lot of these fancy new titles um, that, are, that are coming out. Uh, to boil it down, headache performance is really ensuring that the players are able to, to be at their peak levels when it comes to match day. Um, obviously, hopefully, they're winning three points. Within that, there's, there's loads of different aspects. Uh, there's data monitoring. It comes from GPS, heart rate monitors, etc. There's strength and conditioning. There's nutrition. Uh, there's working with the physiotherapy department and the medical staff to try and make sure that that's uh, the best shape possible for players to help them with any issues they might have there. Um, on top of that as well, you know, it's trying to look after players well-being is um, both physically and mentally so there's a whole host of things in there um, that I'm sure we can talk about in a bit more detail In terms of the day-to-day on the training ground are you the person then who's fully in charge as you've said of maintaining the fitness programme for the players? Yeah I mean it's it's part of my role but uh, I'm very fortunate in all the clubs that I've been at and you know, I think it's probably the same across the majority of football clubs is that there's input from, you know, lots of, of different people, uh, whether that be managers, whether that be physiotherapists, whether that be uh, other members of backroom staff, coaches, etc. But ultimately, when it comes down to fitness, it's the main aspect in my role, I would say. So, you know, we would look at certain players in terms of where they are, have they played maybe 90 minutes on the Saturday before? What type of training do they then have to do following that? Is there maybe players coming back from injury? Do they have to taper their training? Is there players that possibly haven't played the last couple of weeks and have to uh, maybe just give them that little bit of extra load within training to try and make sure that every player is at the, the right level of fitness for, for what we're looking for at that kind of stage of the season? Something I'm really interested to ask you about Graham, is the use of the GPS units that we hear about quite a lot in football. How do they help you gain insight into sort of like, for instance, a player's work rate, the sprint distances they're covering in a training session in a match? I mean, GPS is, is massive, um, particularly for in, in my role. Again, it's something that has really come into football in the, in the last uh, decade or so and 
I mean, like every kind of technology, whether it be uh, your laptop, your phone, etc., technology keeps getting better and better, and we're able to get more and more information out of it. In terms of you know the way that the GPS units work, uh, you've probably seen pictures before or, or video clips, etc., where the players are wearing a kind of a sports bra, for want of a a better phrase, um, and within that will be a, a small unit that's linked up to a satellite. Uh, that then records the data during the session, and after the session, it's, it's my job to, to get that data, to analyse it, and then feed it back in terms of the coaching staff and, and the managers. Uh, some of the information we can get for that, it, it really is incredible. I mean, you know, you're talking not just one or two pieces of information, some of the actual units have over 30, 40, 50 different metrics. So we can kind of narrow it down a bit. Again, we don't want too much data because we want to try and really have a look at what are the important things for, for us in football. So we tend to focus on things like high-intensity running, sprint distance, uh, the metres per minute that the players are covering, um, also things like number of accelerations and decelerations. Um, and probably one of the other things we look at is something called player loading, which helps us to look at how much impact has actually been placed on that player's body throughout the session. Um, so there's a whole host of different things there. But again, one of the key things that we have to look at is scientists or fitness coaches or head of performance or whatever title we, we decide to use moving forward is every player's individual. So although we get all of this GPS data and it's great uh, that we can see, you know, what's the central midfielder doing, what's the fullback doing, what's the striker doing, we have to try and look at that in terms of player individuality and, you know, if you actually think about the game for a second, your centre-back isn't going to be doing the same type of movements as your fullback, just because of the way that the, the game's progressed and the way that these positions um, take place actually on the pitch. So we also have to kind of really look at individuals and try and compare and contrast, well, what's that particular player done today? You know, let's just say it's a, a Tuesday, which would normally be a hard-working session. Can we compare it to last Tuesday? and compare it to the Tuesday before then and try and get some kind of average for what do we expect that player to do within that session on that day. Now, there might be a reason why we want the player to do more. It might be a reason why we want the player to do less, maybe from the management or maybe due to injury or previous games. But in terms of actually using the data and trying to build up a picture, these are some of the really important things we need to consider for, you know, great to get the data, but what does it actually mean? Because, again, to kind of go back to, to my role in you know, sports science in general, we're trying to improve players and make them better on the pitch. So it's great collecting all this data, but how can we then use it to, to help improve performance and you know whatever club it might be, win a game on a Saturday and, and try and you know, move as high up a week as possible? Something you hear a lot of when it comes to sports science is is the sort of red zone element of it when a player reaches a certain point where maybe they shouldn't be participating in high intensity training or, or games or whatever 
Can you just explain the thinking behind that? Because a lot of pundits mention it without really explaining it sometimes. Yeah, no, it's something that we do have a look at and we are conscious of. Um, I mean, the easiest way to, to try and think about it is if you if you have a, a car and, you know, you constantly push that car and push that car to its top speed, to its top speed, you know, eventually that car is going to break down, whether that's something to do with the engine or the tyres or whatever it may be. And when we think of athletes and, you know, how we try and condition athletes and what we actually ask athletes to do, then it's no different. You know, if we're constantly trying to push athletes and push athletes to get them to be stronger and fitter and faster, you know, all these things we, we want our players to be, there has to come a breaking point where the body simply can't cope with it anymore. Um, because again, the body needs recovery just as much as it needs to work and it needs to train. Um, you know, there is certain points where you look to go into the red zone because you want to overload that player. So in order to try and um, get a gain in fitness or get an improvement, we have to push the body beyond where it's used to being so we get an adaptation. However, the problem is if we continue to push into this red zone and into this red zone, then players will ultimately break down, injuries will happen, and that's not going to be any use to any football club if we've got an injured player. So there is times when players can go into this red zone, as it's been called. You know, it's not this terrible thing that the minute a player goes into a red zone, they've got to stop and they've got to lap and they've got rule. They can go into that area where they're working, you know, maybe above 90% of maximum heart rate. Maybe they're sprinting at speeds of over seven metres a second. You know, these are some of the types of measurements you might use. But it's about limiting that amount of time in that zone to make sure we get the kind of best adaptations possible so that players are going to become fitter, they are going to become faster, more robust for the season or the, the games that are coming up. Um, so it's something that it does get used a lot. It's a phrase you'll hear about, but it's not always as, as negative as some things we might think when we hear about it. You know, there is positives to being in that zone, but it's just making sure we manage it in the right way possible. Two aspects of your role I want to, to ask you about in particular are pre-season and then further on a match day. First of all, tackling pre-season. I'd imagine your role is is, is, is very influential during pre-season because you might be getting new players in who have maybe, maybe never been involved with using the GPS system before or working with yourself. So how does a pre-season work from your point of view when you're working at any club? Yeah, I mean, pre-season normally would be when the fitness staff, the sports science staff will, will have a, a big input. Again, it's going to be different across every club. Different managers um, will have different inputs of what they want to do, how they want things to, to unfold. Um, you know, I can remember going back to one of my first clubs at Partick Thistle, and at that point, the manager wanted to have a lot of friendly games very early in the pre-season. So that's something that you have to try and work around and adapt. Um, but the key thing for, for pre-season is planning and trying to prepare as best you can. Um, I mean, people think of pre-season starting you know, June time, 
July time, whatever it may be, but in actual fact, the planning for pre-season normally starts around about the January period um, before the next season actually takes place. And that's really to do with looking at where are you going to go during pre-season? You know, are you fortunate enough to be at a club that is going to uh, afford for a training camp, whether that be a training camp in the UK or whether that be a training camp or abroad, maybe like say uh, La Manga or Austria or Italy or wherever it could be. So right away you're looking at when do we put the training camp in date-wise. From that, you're then trying to build back and say, right, we're going to have a training camp then. When do we actually need to bring the players in, first of all? So what day is going to be day one of pre-season? And that depends on fixtures and cup competitions. Now, in Scotland, obviously, we start a bit earlier than England with the Betfred Cup. Um, if you're in European competition, you could be starting even earlier. Um, so you may have a date penciled in, but it also then depends on, well, when does your season actually finish? Because if you're involved in playoffs or if you're involved in Scottish Cup finals, you know, you might only have a two or three week turnaround period, which I think this season Celtic had, had something like that. And I think Rangers were the same. It was, it was very, very short because of the European competition. So planning and preparing becomes really, really important, you know, even in that kind of January, February period. Once that's out of the way and you've got a, a kind of structure of these are the days that we're going to be starting back and this is how pre-season is going to unfold and we're going to have a training camp and the first fixtures, etc. will happen here. Then it's a case of looking at what you're trying to achieve during the, the pre-season period. Um, you'll probably see a lot of videos during pre-season time where you'll get fitness tests and you'll see players doing lots and lots of different types of running, etc. And yeah, that forms part of it. Again, going back to the whole idea with data, there's got to be a reason why you're, you're actually doing these things. So normally within pre-season, day one is getting to know the players. A lot of the time what actually will happen if the player's been at the club season before is they've went away during the off-season with a programme. So although the season might have finished, and you know, we might think that players actually go away and, and have six weeks off or seven weeks off or whatever it may be. But a lot of the time, they actually get one to two weeks off because they're then into their, their off-season programme where they're trying to maintain and make sure that they don't lose any of that strength or any of that um, fitness that they've built up over the course of the season. So as much as sometimes you think players get to sit back and, and lie on the beach for six weeks, they still have to work during this period as well because if they do that, it makes my job a lot easier when they come back and be one for pre-season. Um, but failing on from that, you know, during the pre-season, you need to make sure that players understand what's asked of them. So you know, do they know how to use the GPS units? Uh, have they seen them before? Can they operate them? Can they put them back so that we can collect the data? Really, really simple things like that where you just make sure that there's not going to be any issues where we're not able to collect all the data we need. Um, once you've done that, probably day two, we look to go into fitness testing to get a gauge of where the guys are at. 
we can then see and compare it to the previous season if the player has been with the club before, or we can look at where the players are in terms of maybe new players that have been signed, or players that might be on trial, etc. Kind of getting a, a hold on what they are physically able to do at, at that period of time. And then following on from that, it's going into the actual training programme that will have been planned and developed months uh, before, looking at taking the players through different forms of aerobic conditioning, anaerobic conditioning, speed work, sprint work, um, before kind of tapering down towards the end of pre-season, where we're looking at the kind of tactical demands, technical demands that the, the manager will want for the, the season ahead where he's decided to play a 3-5-2 or a 4-4-2, whatever it may be, and how that's all going to fit. So Scotland would be then into the, the Betfred Cup games, etc. Um, but also each of these sessions, the data we get back, how we use that data, how that ties into what we think the players should be aiming for and what they're achieving is really, really important in order to try and make sure that we're, we're actually doing what we've set out to do during the pre-season. Because again, you know, if we're not doing what we're hoping to do, if we're not working players hard enough, giving them that stimulus to, to get the fitness gains they're looking for, or if we're overworking them, then that's going to create problems far down the line that comes into, into matches during the season. You mentioned there that players have, have to keep themselves ticking over during the, the sort of holiday. I'm not asking you to name any names, but how difficult does it make your job if a player that comes back and they're not in good shape at all and they've maybe enjoyed their holiday a bit too much? <laughs> yeah, it can be very, very difficult. Um, you know, you've probably heard of different things from player stories and media, etc. where you talk about things like fat clubs, etc. and, you know... Players get weighed and they need to be within a certain weight or percentage body fat. And, um, you know, that that happens. We do weigh players. We do take body fats, etc. Thankfully, I've not really had many players that I've had to worry about in terms of being overweight or fitness-wise, etc. But, you know, if there is a player that, that has had an issue for whatever reason, maybe injury or, you know, maybe something's happened in their life, then... The key thing is to, to actually speak to the player and and have a chat with them and, and try and educate them. Um, again, I'm fortunate enough to have been in football for, for a period of time now. Um, and you know, throughout your time in football, you, you learn that footballers are just like everybody else. They're human beings and the best way to, to get the best out of them is actually by by having a chat with them and speaking to them and trying to educate them about why they might need to maybe lose two kilograms or they might need to lose half a percent body fat or whatever it may be. You know, we're talking very small margins here, but again, if we can speak to that player and try and paint the picture as to benefits for them, then we're going to get the buy-in rather than have it the kind of mentality of, well, you know what, you've came back, you're three kilograms overweight, you're going to have to do double sessions or triple sessions for the next two weeks to, to lose that weight. Because right away, you're going to lose that relationship with the player. It's going to break down. And ultimately, the player might not want to tell you further on in the season if they have issues or if they need help with something. They're only going to see you as 
that's that guy that made me run to, to lose those two kilos or made me go on the bike or made me do whatever it was. So, yeah, there's been one or two instances, but really with these players, it's just having a chat with them. And ultimately, the player knows themselves the majority of the time that there might be something where they have to try and, and lose a bit of weight or maybe they're not as sharp as they'd want to be. Um, so I've never really had any issues with the players where there'd be an argument or there'd be anything where they, you know, they've disagreed in terms of, of that sort of area. Where the, the game's moved on and players are much more professional these days and they understand they, they have to look after their body. But no, ultimately, if somebody does come back in and they're not in the shape that we'd want, then you know, we do have to try and maybe adjust programs for them to try and get them to catch up um, and be at the level we're looking for because you know, if we have a team of players out there on a Saturday and there's two or three that aren't at the level of fitness we're looking for it's going to have an impact on the team and, and on their performance and that's you know, everybody's job is, is about making sure that the players are at the best level of performance possible whether that's myself from a physical point of view Although that's my manager from a you know a technical or a tactical point of view. That leads me on perfectly to my next question, which was about a match day. In terms of the match day experience, where do you come in from your strength and conditioning point of view on a, on a on a match day environment? Um, again, I'm very fortunate with the managers that I have worked with in the past. You know, they've all been very open to input and suggestions in terms of what we think from a physical point of view, how prepared or, or non-prepared players are. The main um, main part on a match day would be conducting the, the match day warm-up. Um, so making sure the players obviously go to their paces, are suitably warm in terms of heart rate, blood flow into the working muscles, and they're appropriately activated the muscles or stretched off. Um, then from that, again, depends on what manager it is that I've worked with in the past. Sometimes it might also include letting them uh, go through passing or possession drills, give them a touch of the ball, etc., to make sure that they're ready to go from, from that technical point of view as well. So, you know, we're warming up the muscles, the heart, etc., but we also want to get the brain engaged as well and make sure that they're able to and be ready to go out and play when it, it comes to three o'clock on a Saturday. So warm-up's a massive part of it. When we come back in after the warm-up, that can be very short, 10, five-minute period. There may be players that require certain supplements. Um, they may look at things like caffeine shots, etc., or hydration tablets, or energy gels. So again, it's making sure that all these things are are there and on hand for players um, to get and to utilise as quickly as possible before going out um, onto the pitch at, at three o'clock. During the game, it's more of a, a backseat role. That's obviously when the, the manager and the coaches take control. Um, but you've also got to monitor the players on the pitch and you're looking to see are any of them showing any signs of fatigue or is there anything that you, know, you might have to pass on to, to the manager and say about a certain player, um, as well as making sure that the substitutes are, are keeping warm throughout the game because 
you know, anything can happen in football, whether it's a sending off that changes the game, or whether it's an injury, or whether things need to be freshened up, etc. So these players have got to make sure that they're, they're ready to go at, at any point. Um, after the game, it then moves on to recovery and nutrition. And the key thing is getting nutrition into players as quickly as possible after the game. So we're looking to try and get uh, carbohydrates and proteins into players to, to try and make sure they're able to refuel and, and recover adequately. Um, we also have, again, different kinds of supplements, protein shakes, recovery shakes, etc. that we'll try and get to players and try and make as individual as possible because... You know, as I keep going back, the players are human beings like everybody else, like yourself and me, Callum. And everybody has their own preferences. And you know, some players may prefer a certain flavour or a different brand or whatever it may be. And yeah. after playing 90 minutes, we want to make sure that we're trying to look after players as, as best we can. Um, after that comes the, the other side of the job, where maybe some of the substitutes who haven't featured or have only played a very short amount of time, go back out onto the pitch and it's probably one of the, the hardest parts of a, a fitness coach's job is where we try and then get the, the players to go and, and do some extra work. You know, if we've got a player that's played 90 minutes and we compare that to a player that's maybe sat on the bench for, for 90 minutes, we want to try and make sure that the player's able to do some kind of work out after the game now we know it's not going to be at a level of player that's played in 90 minutes, but it's important we try and get them to do some form of activity, some kind of exercise, uh, and then when they come back into training the following day, uh, or on the Monday, as it might be, then their training would be different to the players that had already played the, the match on the Saturday. So that then finishes dealing with all the players. It then goes to getting the GPS, collecting that in, downloading it, getting the data, analysing it, and then passing it on to, to the management to, to have a look at, you know, how is a certain player done today, or, you know, what kind of distance have they covered, or what kind of high-intensity running have they done in the first half compared to the second half, etc. And it's a really handy tool, and a lot of time when you actually see the data and you think about the way a, a game's unfolded, whether it be against a team that um, has had more possession of the ball or whether it be against a team where we've had more possession of the ball, you can really start to see some, some clear patterns emerge. Um, and I can think back again to I think at Partick Thistle, we, we played a pre-season match against Brighton at that point, who I think they were near the top of the championship, which was Sam Hooper was the manager. Um, and during that game, you know, we got the, the GPS status back and high-intensity running, sprinting was, was through the roof, which from a physical point of view, you're thinking, oh, that's great. But the sad fact is we lost the game 4 nothing. I think we had maybe about six touches of the ball in the first half. You know, Brighton were just so good. But again, it's this whole idea, how do we use the data? What's it telling us? But more importantly, how can we link that to the actual match? Because that's ultimately the most important thing. Um, and that's, what's going to have the biggest impact in terms of the club and the results and where the club's going to be that season. I want to talk to you about your time at various clubs. You, Your first real experience, a first team 
was where the Stirling University team as they transitioned into Lowland League football. What was it like helping them transition into being a Lowland League team? Uh, I came after they had went into the Lowland League. So at that point, it was Eddie May that was the manager and Mark Spalding, who was the assistant, who then went on to St Mirren. Um, it, was, it was definitely an eye-opener. I'd had kind of little bits of experience. Um, I'd worked in the academy at my local club at Stellan Albion. Um, I'd had very, very brief experience with the first team there, um, where you know the academy may be training alongside, or, or maybe the, the reserves just after, and I kind of get shouted across. And I always remember my, my first experience with, with first team management. It was assistant manager at the time, and he shouted me over and they kind of thinking, oh, great, here we go, this is, this is my chance. I'm, I'm, you know, maybe make it into the first team and do some work here. And, and uh, I'm not going to name his name, but he shouted me over. He says, oh, are you the sports science boy? I said, yeah, yeah, that's me. He says, great, son, right, I'll tell you what, I need a diet. I need to lose two stones. So if you give me a, uh, give me a couple of days and just give me what I need to eat, that would be great. Thanks, Jim. So that was uh, my first first opportunity first team football. <laughs> so it was certainly an eye opener. But um, going back to still in uni, you know, at that time university had a, a great program where they were trying to get high caliber athletes in, and you know the results that they achieved at that time uh, under Eddie May and Mark Spalding. They went on to I think they were British champions. They had won the university league. They, you know, they broke all sorts of records, and it was actually quite an easy transition working with these players because they were student athletes who were really hungry. Their education went hand in hand with their football because they knew that they had to perform on both fronts um, in terms of the the bursaries they were getting, etc. And the one thing that, that really struck me about that team, and quite a few of them went on to, to play senior at you know, League One or League Two level, was the real desire and, and hunger that these young players had to, to learn and get better. Um, we actually had one player at that time who, he was a man now. Uh, you know, he just had to look at a weight and he would put on a kilo or two kilos of muscle mass and it was more a case of trying to get players to, to maybe do a little bit less because, again, they didn't need that extra muscle mass. They didn't need to be as, as big as they were. You know, this guy looked like a, a rugby player just in terms of the sheer size and bulk. So we wanted to try and make sure that he was able to perform as, as best he could in the pitch. And that was more difficult trying to have a conversation from, from that point of view and maybe telling them to reduce weights in the gym or maybe alter his programme, etc. And it was the opposite end of the spectrum where you may have had a player who you had to, to push on a bit more and, and try and get them to do that extra work. So it was worthwhile for me. It was definitely a, a great start to, to work in probably more so full-time and, and first-team level football. Um but again, I'll, I'll never forget one of the, the main things about that squad was the, the willingness to learn and, and also standards. Uh, and that's one thing that definitely working with Eddie, and I know he's now involved at Hibernian in the, the academy there, but 
you know, the standards that he set and the standards that he expected of the players um, really was, was something that was, was great to see and, you know, it's something that you, you take with you throughout your, your career. Your next move into first-team coaching uh, and fitness coaching was with Partick Thistle under Alan Archibald. What was it like to work with, with Alan and what was your time at Partick Thistle like? I uh, loved every minute of it. You know, it was Alan Archibald's obviously a, a legend um, at the club and it was sad to, to see him leave, but he's now back in the, in the number two role. But um, again, day one, going to Partick Thistle, um, I remember walking up to the, the main stand because at that point the, the players and the staff still all met at the stadium and then from the stadium we'd, we'd go to the, the training ground. Um, at that point, there was there was two kit men, an MD that's ever worked at Partick Thistle. I've been involved with the club. I'll, I'll know the pair well, uh, Ricky and Chico. Um, so walks up to the main door, rings the doorbell, and uh, Chico answers the door, looks at me, no the day, son. He shuts the door back in my face. <laughs> so that was day one, the, the first minute at Partick Thistle. Standing <laughs> there a little bit confused, I'm thinking, nah, nah it's just so. rings the doorbell again. Chico answers the door. What is it, son? He says, um, I'm here, sports science, and the manager, and he looks at me again. He says, no, 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 the day, son. He shuts the door again. <laughs> at this point, you're thinking, right, what do I do here? Where do I go? You know, how, what's, I thought, right, you know what? I'll give it. I'll give it a third. Third time, so I go again. Rings the doorbell. Chico answers, and after about five minutes of question and conversation, and tell me to go to the houses across the road to collect brooms and milk and everything else. That I think he used the, the same jokes on on every member of staff on day one. Uh, eventually, got into the stadium and began to to start work. So. Uh, there was never a dull moment at Partick Thistle, that's for sure. You know, it really was um, a fantastic place to be and some of the staff that were there at the time really, really were tremendous people. Um, but at that point, I was still really young. I think I'd just probably turned 24. So here was me, 24-year-old, working with a, a first team in the, in the Premier League and trying to deal with some real big characters. Um, I mean, the Thistle team at that time had guys like Callum Higginbottom. Um, the following season, we signed Ryan Stevenson. Um, we also managed to get Lyle Taylor on loan, who obviously is doing tremendous things south now at Charlton. But to try and deal with some of these players and some of the backgrounds they had and, and the level of football they played down south, etc., it, it was an eye-opener. Um to then take that on board and try and get across some of the, the methods or, or things that I was trying to do. And particularly when you're a sports scientist or a fitness coach, you know, players ultimately can see as, oh no, this is a guy that makes us run, or this is a guy that's going to, you know, get me to go and, and do these things without the ball, and, you know, he's going to want to, to test me and, and prod me and try and get all this different data and things. So, Sometimes it's, it's not the easiest of relationships to, to build. Um, but, again, having went into politics or so and, and worked with 
with Alan Archibald and, and Scott Parson, who's a number two at the time. You know, they, they bought into it and again they could see the importance of fitness um to the club at that point. So it was difficult trying to think when's the time to have input, when's the time not to have input, when do you want to try and maybe flag things up? Uh how big a report do you do you give the manager? You know, I can remember my my very first report that I did and at that point we had heart rate monitors. But you know, I'm giving the manager a report that was something in the region about six or seven pages long. At that time I was very proud of myself thinking, Wow, look at this report I've produced but ultimately is the manager going to read that? What's the key points from it? What are they going to take away? So it's very much a learning curve, just the same as, as everything in terms of how do you try and get information across and how do you try and help the, the manager as best you can because that, that's what all backroom staff roles are. It's about how do you try and help people and, and how do you try and make sure the manager and the players can, can do the job the best they can. Um, but like I said, Thistle, it was definitely a, a club at that point that um, was in a good place with the players we had and some of the staff that we had um, and you know, for the club to, to be in the SPL and, and do as well as he did for as long as he did, uh, you know, there's got to definitely be a lot of credit there that goes to, to Alan and, and Scott at that time for, um, for what they managed to do. But you know, players ultimately after being there for a period of time, do start to, to come round and, and buy into into what you do. And again, I can remember, I'm not going to name names, but um, we supplied lunch at, at Partick Thistle after training. And I'll always remember that, that one player came up to me and it was a kind of buffet-style lunch where you would have maybe chicken, pasta, salad, soup, whatever it may be, uh, and always be a fruit salad at the end as well. Um, and this particular day, the, the players obviously get his lunch. He's in front of me in the in the queue, and he turns around to me and goes, um, "Hendo is, is 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 a grape. One of your five a day is that a fruit? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a fruit. All right, brilliant. <laughs> I kid you not, Calum. He then takes his plate and he he goes to pick off one grape and puts it on his plate. Then picks off a second grape. Third grape, fourth grape, and a fifth grape. And he puts these five grapes on his plate. And I'm kind of looking at him now. What, what are you doing? So that's my five for the day. That's that's my five five for the day. That's it. Sorted. And he just walked away. And at that point, you're thinking, right, okay, need to maybe have a wee bit more education with, with some players and try and help them with nutrition, etc. But you know, again. Even things like that, where if players are asking you questions, if they're trying to get information, then you know what? That's a positive because you would rather that players would, would come and talk to you and would try and learn and try and give themselves the best opportunity on the pitch than and they kind of shy away from you. And the minute you walk in your dressing room, everybody leaves. Or to be fair, sometimes players do do that when they walk in a dressing room. But again, you know, you want to try and have that, that relationship and. Certainly at that point, um, at Thistle, you know, the club was in a good place. The players were buying into to what we were trying to do, and um, hopefully that was that was seen with the results at that time on on the park. 
one player I want to ask you about in particular just because of the success he's had in recent years is Stephen O'Donnell. You worked with him before he moved down to, to, to Luton Town. Just how much of a hard worker was Stephen? Because when you watch him playing for Kilmarnock and obviously now for Scotland, he just, it just appears like somebody that, that gives every single day his all. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing you can say about uh, about Sod is that in terms of his, his work rate is is incredible. Um, you know, at that point he was he was still very young. Um, I mean, he still is young to be fair to him, but he was probably at the the beginning of his, his professional career, um, having moved on from from academy football. But um, the energy he had to to get up and down the pitch was was incredible uh, and again that was just a built-in mentality that he wanted to, to work and work and work and, and do as much as he could and try and be as, as fit as he could and um, you know that's that's not came from, from any type of, of sports science or any fitness coach that's just from, from his, him as an individual um, I'm fortunate enough just now we've, we've got a player like that at Falkirk uh, Michael Doyle who's the exact same and you know, a fullback as well but these guys seem to have that kind of inbuilt and ingrained desire that they, they want to try and, and go as far as they can and they want to try and work and have this kind of unrelenting energy um, but the one thing for me that, that really kind of made Stephen stand out from, from other players was his his ability to go and ask questions and you know I've said players have asked questions before but we saw that it would be almost relentless at times. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? What am I doing this for? How's this going to improve me? How am I going to get better? What's that going to do? What's that so you know it took a lot of stuff on board and it got a lot of stick at the time to players because Again, you would often get told to, to shut up in as nice a way as possible, but uh, he really wanted to try and learn and, and do the best that he could. And you know, whether that was at the club or even away from the club, you know, he'd always look to try and do extra and, and try and improve himself in, in whatever way he possibly could. Um, at one point, we actually had somebody that would come in and, and work on phones with him. So we were ahead of the game. We had uh, maybe the first throwing coach in, in Britain before it became popular. But, you know, he was happy to go and, and work with this guy and he was happy to go and try and improve because as a fullback, he knew he had to be fit, he had to be quick, he had to be able to take throw-ins, he had to be able to deliver crosses. So, you know, he was maybe one of the uh, trailblazers where he was able to go and work with a throwing coach at that point. In terms of from Partick Thistle, you go and you work with Dundee United at the at the academy as the head of sports science and medicine there, and then you have your next step into kind of first team football with Greenock Morton. Now, I don't want to put you in a position because I know it's a a topic that that will be hard to speak about because of the situation that happened uh, with the management team etc. at that time. But what was the situation? How how was Morton as a club for you and? When the management team ultimately decided to leave, how much of a difficult position did you feel that you were in? Because credit to you, you did stay for that game against Partick Thistle with John Sutton and Derek Anderson. Before then, moving on, what was that situation like from your point of view, having actually been involved in it firsthand? Yeah, again, obviously you said there, you know, there's uh, been agreements and things that have, 
have happened um, since that time. So you know, there's not a lot of, of detail that I can go into. But um, all I can say is that every club that I've been sponsored to work with, I've, I've enjoyed my time at, at every club. Um, and no matter what the circumstances are, or you know whatever happens, whether management teams move on because of their, their own accord, their own choices, or whether you know people lose their jobs, etc., because of, of results, whatever it may be, uh, for me it's a key mantra. You know, you've got to do the best job possible. And like I said, whether that's in Morton, whether that's been Dundee United, whether that's been Partick Thistle, Falkirk, whatever it may be. You know, ultimately, you're there to try and do the best job you can possible for the players, uh, for the other members of the staff, the club as a general, as a whole. Um, so it was just a case of continuing to do uh, the duties required and uh, and work um, up until whatever the point may be. Um, so it's something that happens in football. People will move on for different clubs, etc. Transfers, whether it be players or whether it be members of staff. But uh, ultimately, it's just a case of, and I'm sure everybody in football has the, the same opinion that you try and work and uh, do the best job possible at whatever club um, it is you're at. Um, whether you're there for a day, a season, or, or a decade, you, know, you always want to try and make sure that you, you work. Um, from your brief spell with Morton, you move on to, to Falkirk, where you still are now, as we discussed at the start of the podcast. A really tough season for the club last season um, that obviously resulted in, in relegation. In terms of the atmosphere around the club at times, obviously fans were understandably quite frustrated with the situation. Um, how difficult was that to, to work within because... Obviously, when a club is struggling, you're, everyone at the club is doing their utmost to try and improve the club's fortunes. But ultimately, how tough was that in the end, and how much of a blow was was relegation? Yeah, I mean, relegation is something that, that nobody ever wants to experience in their in their football career. Um, you know, it's certainly something that is not a nice thing. It's something that nobody ever sets out at the, at the beginning of a season to, to achieve, that's for sure. But um, well, the thing is that you know, we tried and tried to, to obviously keep going and, and keep the club up and to take it to the, the last day of the season. And it was at one point, it almost was a great escape in Ross County, but obviously other results didn't go away. So it was something that wasn't nice to experience. It was something that, you know, the club in general um, is still recovering from and hopefully, depending on what happens with the main by this season, we're able to, to bounce back into championship. But it's trying to make sure that no matter what the, the situation is on the park, whether it be after a, a 4-0 win or whether it be after a, a 2-0 defeat, you know, players have got to try and make sure that they are constantly uh, in a good place and upbeat and able to, to go and perform. And, um, you know, the, the fans backed us to the help last season at Falkirk and the same again this season. They've, they've backed us as we, as we try and get back up to the Championship. So, you know, we can never uh, take the fans for granted and the impact that they can have in terms of 
helping the club um, perform on the pitch. But it's really just trying to make sure that we we keep the players obviously physically as good as uh, shape as they can be, but you know mentally as well. And that's where results can have a big impact in terms of how does that affect their performance. You know, you see it a lot of times if, if teams maybe go on a run of two or three games where they they maybe have a few bad defeats. It comes into the next game and, you know, the, the players might look a little bit anxious or, you know, a little bit worried, whatever it may be, but it's ultimately up to, to us as, as staff, as players, to, to try and turn it around and try and make sure that we're able to then go on a run of good results. And um, like I said, this season, we're obviously within touching distance to the, the top of the league. We're, we're one point off as, as things stand at the moment. Um, but we'll just have to, to wait and see where it, it plays out and hopefully as a club we can get back into championship and, and then try and kick on again and, and who knows what, what could happen further down the line because the, the support and the fan base that, that Falkirk has and the, the infrastructure around about it you know, there's an opportunity there for the, the club to, to really go and, and flourish and obviously try and, and get back to the, the level it was at um, you know, in the past when it was in the SPL and doing well in cup competitions, etc. In terms of the management team that you came in with, when they left the club, were you concerned that you were going to have to leave the club as well, or did Lee Miller and David McCracken make it clear from the outset that you were very much a part of the plans? No, again, uh, it's a case of making sure that you're you're available to whoever it is as a manager at the time uh, and I, you know, I go back to the scenario before etc where ultimately my job is to try and impact upon the players physically on the on the pitch and get them in the best shape possible to perform um, and that's what my services are, are there for um, and again the, the two gaffers have came in and you know they've looked to make changes and do things the way they want to do and um, I've been fortunate enough to, to be part of that and like I said they've continued to, to use my services and um, take my input on board whether that be from GPS or gym sessions or nutrition or recovery or whatever it might be um, in terms of how training etc unfolds then you know, the guys have, have been excellent and they've been first class in terms of uh, allowing me to have input, take it on board and they might not always agree with that input and they might go with for our decisions but um, it certainly made me feel uh, part of the staff the same as, as any football club and, and the way every club works is that you know all the staff is key that they pull together to try and get the best outcome possible on the park. In terms of yourself Graham as well as being the head of performance at at Falkirk, you also lecture with West College Scotland on their sort of sports and fitness programme. What's it like teaching students about your experiences within football when it comes to fitness and sports science? Something that's probably a little bit unique in terms of when I was going over, uh, going through my kind of uh, undergraduate and master's degrees, um, a lot of the lecturers didn't really have that applied knowledge um, so, you know, fantastic, really intelligent people discussing different types of sports science principles, whatever it may be, 
But in terms of taking those principles and putting them onto an actual pitch, you know, and how they work day to day in a football club, it doesn't always tie in or, or go hand in hand. Um, so I think, I hope anyway, that one thing that the students really do take out of it is that they can see how things can can happen and, and be applied in terms of a, a real setting. Um, because you know what you see in our textbook or, or what you read, although that might be the scientific, you know, exact way and principle of doing that. Again, I keep going back to the idea that we're, we're dealing with human beings and we're dealing with individuals, and you know what it says in a textbook isn't going to work for every single human being because, you know, like everything, we're all made up slightly different in terms of our metabolism, in terms of our mentality in terms of muscle fibres, etc. So, you know, it's about making sure that, yeah, you know, these students have got a knowledge of um, the underlying principles, but how do you then go and apply that to actual people? You know, and I've mentioned kind of some of the, the characters there and some of the, the careers that they've had and people you've got to try and deal with, but you know, how does that then tie in with, with what you know in terms of in knowledge and how you can take that on? Um, I can remember I was very fortunate to go out and visit Orlando City as part of a, a kind of study uh, to go out and have a look at what they were doing. And at that point, Taka, I think it was just going to be his second season um, with Orlando, and it was incredible to watch. I mean, to see this world-class player being able to, to train in front of your eyes was, was incredible. But one thing I did notice at the time was what he did wasn't always the same as what the rest of the squad did. And that was particularly in a, a gym-based setting where he would do different things. And I spoke to the fitness coach at the time and asked the question, I said, you know, the Kaka's there and Again, it was incredible to watch him and the things he, he could do with a ball. But why is he doing a set of different things? And it goes back to this idea of, well, you know, we want to make sure that we're doing what's best for him as a player. So from the career he's had, the background he's had, previous injuries, etc., he's had, then we want to make sure that what we're doing is, is the best for him. Obviously, at that point, he was the major asset for the club, he's a marquee signing, etc. Um, so he was treated a bit different. He did different things compared to other players, which going back to the kind of idea with students, you're not going to get that kind of experience and knowledge out of a textbook. It's only by seeing things and being involved in football clubs that you, you actually see that. Um, and that's certainly one thing that you know, I would encourage to any aspiring coaches, sports scientists, whoever it might be that wants to work in the football industry, is to, to go and try and, and view things and see things uh, and how clubs actually carry out um, their processes and their training. Now, the majority of the time you might get answered with a no, you can't watch, you can't do this, but you never know. You know one out of ten allows you to go and watch something, then hopefully able to, to pick something up and again, add that to your current knowledge, your coaching, or sports science, whatever it may be, and then become a, a better practitioner from that. 
Brilliant, Graham. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I think that's a really good note to end on in terms of one of my last questions was actually going to be what advice would you give to any aspiring young coaches, whether that be in the fitness sector or the or the football sector. But you've answered that question in your own right. So thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. No, no problem, Cam. Like I said, really appreciate it and hopefully listeners find it useful. So we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song